This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. I have with me uh, Sunil Kilnani, very well-known prolific writer and at present professor of politics and director at King's College in London. Uh, his best known book, I think, is The Idea of India and his last book, which has just had tremendous critical acclaim, is um, Incarnations. It's a bestseller and highly appreciated. So Sunil, uh, we are now in this, in the last throes of what is called post-truth. And you have been examining uh, India over the decades. And I think you've probably experienced what is called post-truth in many different forms. Now the disease has been given a name. So what do you think, what kind of, what do you think of the the process of post-truth? And how do you think it's affecting the general public? How is it affecting writers and journalists? On what do we know um, that what we should believe or not, what we should not believe. Mm. Well, a lot of questions. Just take one at a time, is when you, sure. whichever you. Yeah. Well, let me come at it first of all. Um, I guess as a historian, um, and as you mentioned, the book I've just done is a history of fifty lives from Indian history, and one of the things I wanted to do in that is to say that um, you know, with many of these lives, we know them only through kind of mythic stories about them, whereas in fact these were real historical figures, and they they had complicated difficult and often, you know, not always ennobling lives. And so I wanted in that to go back to the historical record, to the truth, if you like, as as much as we can know it as a scholar, and to tell that story. And I think it's particularly important for historians to do that. Um, because in a way, I mean, what we're seeing in India today is almost a kind of overinvestment in historical myths about the past and underinvestment in historical truth about the past. And uh, lack of an, uh, investigation. Exactly. So I was trying to demythologize some of these stories and say, look, they're, they're still remarkable people. In fact, they're even more remarkable if we see them as human beings. But I think this, this, this um, moving away from the record, from the historical fact to a more imaginative uh, version of the past or present day politics is something that's happening at every level. It's happening in, in journalism driven by different pressures. Some are political pressures, some are commercial pressures. Um, but we do need to fight it as journalists, as scholars, as, as writers. Um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about the uh, about financial corruption and economic corruption and monetary corruption in our society. But for me, one of the biggest dangers we face is actually the corruption of the truth a kind of sense that we can play fast and loose with the facts um, because it's for some higher purpose, because we're building the nation or because we're pursuing some greater good, we can be, uh, we can discount the truth. And I think that's a very dangerous and corrupting uh, path to trod. And, and it behoves our leaders, it behoves critics, it behoves writers to keep to the record and not to make up stories, not to spin stories. Um, and, and that's something that, that um, as you say, you know, it's happening more of today. And also that what's happening today is the dissemination of half-truths or non-truths happens much faster and, and much more widely than ever before, as you know, through the social media and so on. So that uh, that's, uh, introduces a different level of, 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 of concern. Uh, we see now that people seek to look for facts that would just support their beliefs uh, or lack of facts or half-truths, as you said. For example, people genuinely believe that Obama was not born in America because Donald Trump floated that 
lie. Even after his certificate was published, his birth certificate was published, even then people refused to believe it because they just felt, as Donald Trump said, that he felt he was not American. And that feeling was enough to form a certain belief. Um, how do you combat that kind of psych psychology where people have just decided that they, they're not going to address or entertain any facts? Mm. Well, I think there are two aspects there. I mean, one is what you describe rightly as the kind of echo chamber effect, where people only want to hear the facts that they already think uh, support their arguments. Even if there's something that denies their argument, they just exclude it. That's not a fact. And that happens, of course, a lot on the Internet, where, in a sense, people self-select. They read the sites that feed their own um, and, and, and reinforce their own prejudices. But the other, I think, which is also really dangerous, and, and, and you point out to it in, in what you said, is that you know once you make a claim on the Internet, however false it is, that first damaging impact never really gets erased even when it's then shown to be untrue. Um, because, you know, something sensational that hits the internet, it does, as they say, go viral. People have the first impression that this, 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 this must be the truth. And then the denial or the, or the refutation of that falsity never has the same effect. It's like a kind of long, you know, half-life. I mean, there's this, the, the explosion of the lie which people kind of fasten on because it's sensational or new or whatever. Uh, it, it disrupts a particular view of someone. And then um, to, 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 to actually you know, turn that round is extremely difficult. Um, and that's, um, you know, it, it's a very pernicious effect of the way the Internet works and, and, and the virality of it, in a sense. Um, and I... There's no easy solution to it, um, but we have to be aware that that um, you, you know damages reputations can are much more easily destroyed than built via the internet. But as a political scientist, you've observed through the years mm. that India, particularly, has been involved. Politicians have not had a very um, close relationship with truth. I think I'm quoting someone. I'm sure I've read it from somewhere, so I can't. I, I, I shouldn't say it without saying that I think I've read it somewhere. Otherwise, I'll be accused of plagiarism. But I think I have read that um, politicians do not have a good relationship with truth or honesty and they're used to lying because that's what they're supposed to do to sell their policies or to sell themselves or to get voted for. So you've seen it over the years now that this has a label and politicians also ha have now become aware of what is called post-truth. Um, do you think that it's going to have it now ev evolve into a situation where there might be some effort for one politicians to tell the truth or two the, uh, the citizens to to then take what is said or reported with a little more um, cynicism? Uh, well, I mean, you know, you, you, you asked me as a historian to think about this question of how the truth has been used in Indian politics. And of course, if you look at the period of the nationalist movement and right into the 50s or 60s, I mean, there was this real commitment, uh, whether it, uh, obviously starting with Mahatma Gandhi, with Gandhiji, that, that you know, the truth was actually the most powerful weapon you have, particularly if you are powerless, if you don't have economic power, if you don't have political power, if you don't have military power. The one thing that can defeat those who have power is the truth. And I think, you know, we have no more powerful example of that in 20th century history than our own 
national movement led by Gandhi. And, and, and so I think when we play fast and loose with the truth, it's not just that we're denying the historical record, we're actually denying a weapon of great power to the powerless. They, that's all they really have. So, you know, whether it's the record of how government money is spent in reality, whether it's the record of, you know, whether children are getting to school, it's the truth, the facts, the data about that that can actually, you know, be used to hold government and politicians to account. So I think the, 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 this, the importance of that you know, really needs to be underlined. It's not just an indulgence of the journalist or the scholar to go in search of the truth. It's a way of affirming the power of those who don't have power, because that's all they have. And, and I think, you know, even if you look, for example, if you look at Parliament today, um, you know, lots of things are said in Parliament which need to be fact-checked, which need to be fact-checked. And I think, I think you know, part of what the, the, the public discussion needs to do is to be constantly fact-checking when the Prime Minister makes a whole series of claims about, you know, so many million accounts have been opened. Or so These things need to be tested. And, you know, in India, we have relatively good statistical information. We now have the right to information. Of course, people are being killed because of that, but that shows the power of it. That shows that it is threatening people. So all of those things which are under pressure on those fronts are crucial, particularly as we move into an era where, in a sense, the state um, is, is um, on the one hand, becoming more involved in our lives through the digitization, through the internet. So, in a sense, through things like Aadhaar and so on. So, in a sense, the state knows more about our lives. But at the same time, we have to be able to hold that state accountable about what it does with that information and what it does with our political futures. And the only way we can do that is by constantly holding up the record to it. This has been done, this hasn't been done, your, your promises have actually not been played out, etc. But we're dealing with um, leaders like Narendra Modi uh, who, and Putin mm. and Trump, who all three of them seem to be uh, vindictive. If one, they're questioned, or two, negative stories are done. Putin is an extreme where he bumps off journalists. Modi basically just ignores them, or there's uh, an undercurrent of uh, unprovability in, in terms of vindictiveness, um, using instruments of power, leaving no, leaving no footprints. That's done by all governments in India for the last decade, with eight years with the Congress Party, and now with them. So they they do have they have successfully kept journalists in line. This huge amount of self censorship. So so far, post truth seems to be winning. Yes, I mean you know that could be said right now but you know and I don't, I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish about this but sometimes it is the shock of losing something that actually reaffirms a commitment to it I mean you know if we look at our own historical experience the emergency in the midst of the emergency things look incredibly bleak and incredibly um, hopeless um, but you know one of the things that the emergency did as you know is it, it, it reaffirmed the importance of democratic politics of the law, uh, both for the left and the right. I mean, the left who kind of thought it was bourgeois democracy suddenly now realize this is real democracy. It matters. The right who kind of thought this was all, you know, the Congress dominant realized that th this mattered. So, um, um, and, and, and then what we saw after the emergency was a 
resurgence of the press, of the law, of the legal system, and so on. So, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, that this will happen automatically. It's a fight. But it is, I think, at moments of pressure like this. And already in America, you're seeing people reacting to Trump. Um, you know, you're, and it's going to be a big battle, and we don't know how it comes out. But, but at the end of the day, um, what Trump is trying to do, what Putin is doing, what some in India are trying to do, information gets out. People learn the truth. People become skeptical, and then people reject that kind of rule. And we've seen this with authoritarian governments uh, all through history. Um, it's often a very nasty fight. Um, lives are ruined, lives are lost, people suffer. Um, but the struggle does go on. Um, and that's, that's, that's what actually history shows. It's very rare that we find that these, the, the, the pharaonic control of information survives forever. Mm -hmm. It crumbles. Uh, and particularly in, the, in an age like today where, where um, you know, things do get out. And we know from Snowden, we know from Assange, we know from WikiLeaks that, 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 that um, you know, no government, secrecy is no, even governments can't keep their own secrets. Um, and that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing for a citizenry. And that's where, you know, the journalists, the scholars, the researchers, the historians have a huge role to play, to, as do citizens. So on that optimistic note, thank you very much, Sunil. Thank, thank you. you. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.